0: it is. You cannot improve on it. The ages have been at work on it. Mankind can only mar it. What you can do is leave it for your children, your children's children, and for all who come after you as the one great sight which every American should see. These words are engraved on a sign at Roosevelt Point on the south rim of the Grand Canyon, phrase that uh, president roosevelt said to a group of miners timber barons and developers as they overlooked the grand canyon some 100 years ago and this site still remains today as a national park with more than five million visitors each year i've never been to the grand canyon but i've become more fascinated with it because a few weeks ago i watched a documentary called into the grand canyon on disney plus anybody disney plus fans out there yeah, yeah, uh, Cass and I have loved reliving our childhood, watching Boy, uh, uh, Boy Meets World, all that good stuff, right? Uh, anyways, I'm getting off track here. Uh, the Grand Canyon. Watch this documentary called Into the Grand Canyon. Two guys, Kevin Fedarko, uh, a writer, and Pete McBride. He's a, a photographer, and the two of them decide they're going to walk through the Grand Canyon on foot, 750-mile journey, okay, to just better understand the landscape and, and, and the commercial developments that's threatening its beauty. Now, you don't have to go to the Grand Canyon, nor do you have to watch that documentary to know, like, this thing is an incredible sight to see. This past week, I was talking to a couple here at the church who has been to the Grand Canyon, and they said, pictures cannot describe it. Now, I will tell you, they were showing me pictures as they were telling me about that, but they said, you just cannot describe it. It's just beautiful, magnificent, And I know, if you've been, pictures can't describe it, videos, they they just don't do it justice. I understand that. However, I want us all to just, for a moment, feel that sense of awestruckness that the Grand Canyon brings. So let's check out this video. Describable, beautiful, breathtaking. There's a reason why President Roosevelt said, "Leave it as it is. Mankind can only mar it. Anything we would do would take away from its outstanding splendor. No wonder the thing's called grand." And I want you to feel that sense. I want all of us to be there. That sense of awe-struckness, because that is exactly where the inner three disciples are in our story today. Last week, you may remember, we looked at the story of the great confession when Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of a living God, a confession that faith-filled believers still repeat today, something we believe here at Plum Creek about who Jesus is. But shortly after this confession of faith, the gospel writers record that within a week, another awestruck moment happens. This time, it happens on top of a mountain. And, And let me just say this as a side note. Anytime something great happens in the Bible, like it always seems to happen on a mountain. Like, think about for a moment, when Moses receives the Ten Commandments, where is he at? On a mountain, Mount Sinai, right? Or Elijah, when he's wondering whether God is still there and there's people who are following God. God tells him to go up to a mountain. He's going to show himself in a powerful way, and he comes through this still, small voice. Just right before Christmas, as we were working through the Gospel series, we heard the preaching of Jesus, and it was the Sermon on the... Mount, that's exactly right, the message of Jesus. Or when Jesus goes to die, he dies on a hill, a mount called Golgotha. Something great is going to happen in the Bible. It seems to happen on a mountain, and that's the setting of our story with the inner three disciples. We're going to look at Luke's account this morning, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 9. If not, that's fine, just follow along with us on the screens. It says this in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, what we call the inner three disciples, up this mountain and begins to pray with them. And as they're praying, Luke says his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. Matthew and Mark tell of this same story, and they use the same word to describe it. Check it out Matthew 17, verse 2. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Now I recognize if you're hearing this story for the very first time or reading it for the first time, you have to be thinking to yourself, what in the world? Like, even for those of us who've read this story and heard this before, we're still thinking something strange is happening here. A light shines out of Jesus. His face becomes white and bright and brilliant as the sun. His clothes begin to glisten and and turn pure white and dazzling. What is happening here? What's this story telling us? Now, that word transfigured that Matthew and Mark use that word means to change in form. And oftentimes, when we hear that to change in form, we think of something like a, a like a caterpillar, right? That he changes into something he's never been before, right? A caterpillar go, turns into the butterfly, right? Change in form, a transfiguration happens. By the way, transfigured—that's the reason this story is often called the transfiguration. However, if we're going to be consistent with what the gospel writers have been presenting to Jesus, uh, presenting us to Jesus as, we need to recognize that. It's not that Jesus is changing into something he's never been before. Rather, in this moment, he's changing back into a measure of his heavenly glory, right? Because everything up to this point in the Gospels, the Gospel writers have been presenting Jesus as God, as the son of God so it's not like he's changing back into something he's never been before but rather in this moment in this scene the three disciples get to see Jesus for who he really is they get to see him in his glorious and exalted state the story of the transfiguration answers the question who is this Jesus that all the earlier chapters have been asking so who is Jesus how does this story answer that question well, up to this point, Jesus has taught some incredible, ground shaking truths. He has claimed that he is the Son of God. He said that his mission was to come and be the Savior of the world. He performed miracles that confirmed these truths about who he was. But here on the mountain, in this moment, the three disciples get to see not just claims, not just miracles, they actually see the glory. There's no faith here. This is sight. They get assurance that Jesus is God in this moment. But what continues to happen in the story further reveals who Jesus is and what he's done. So let's keep reading here in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 30. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became full awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. Oh, Peter. Verse 34, while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at the time what they had seen. This story is just getting more and more strange the more you read it, isn't it? Jesus' appearance changes, and then perhaps two of the greatest characters from the Old Testament show up on the scene, Moses and Elijah. Now, I've already said Moses, he's the great lawgiver, right? He's the great lawgiver of the Old Testament. On Mount Sinai, he receives the Ten Commandments. He's the one that led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. Elijah, he's a prophet. Prophet are men of God who get a message from God and are take, to take that message and preach it to a group of people, like Jonah to Nineveh, or Daniel to Babylon, Elijah to Israel. And Elijah, by the way, throughout the Scriptures, has come to represent all the prophets, all of the prophets. But they appear on this mountain with Jesus talking about his death. And then when Peter sees this, he's like, let's build some shelters here. One for you, Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And I love Luke here. Luke is, remember, he's retelling this story. And by this time in Peter's life, he's a great leader in the church. And and Luke wants all the people in the early church to know, man, Peter, he, he said some foolish things sometimes. He didn't know what he was saying. That's what Luke says. But all he sees is this incredible scene. We got the greats here. We got Moses. We got Elijah. We got Jesus. I mean, it's like heaven come on earth. It's a revival. Let's let's build a hall of fame. Let's get some food and keep this thing going on forever. And as the six of these men are, are on top of the mountain, and as Peter is saying this thing, suddenly, a thick cloud surrounds all of them. This cloud terrifies Peter and the other disciples, and they're afraid to enter it, but they do. And then... While they're in the cloud, amongst the cloud, this loud, boisterous voice says, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And after the voice speaks, terrified as they were, the disciples look, and Jesus is standing alone. Moses and Elijah are gone. So again, what is going on here? Such a strange story to retell, isn't it? What are the gospel writers trying to tell us about Jesus and why he came through telling us of this event? Well, we're going to answer a few questions that will help us wrap our mind around this story. And the first question we're going to ask is, what does it mean when it says they saw Jesus' glory? They saw his glory. Now, before we can even answer this question, really, we need to say, what is glory? Right? Because when is the last time you used the word glory in a conversation with your spouse? Never. Right, like we just don't say that, right? Like I, we know it's in the Bible, we've read it, we we sing it in songs, we definitely hear it at Christmas time a lot, but it's not something we use in our everyday conversation. So, what is glory? What does that word mean? Well, the Hebrew word for glory is kavod, the Greek word is doxa, from which we get our word doxology, a song you may remember singing you grow up and growing up in church. But the basic meaning of kavod or doxa is heavy, significant. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, there was a guy, he was described as kavod. I want you to check this out. 1 Samuel four 18, I'm not making this up. It says this. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died, for he was an old man, and he was kavod. He was heavy. Y- you understand what this verse is saying about this man, right? I wish I could, like, point to something here, but anyways like it was in the most literal sense of the word he was glorious heavy weighty but surely to goodness that is not what the gospel writers meant to say when they said they saw Jesus glory right they didn't talk about how big he was no 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 no. so what does that word glory mean well that's the reason why I want us to watch that video of the Grand Canyon there's something about the nature of the Grand Canyon the awesomeness of it the awe-struckness, if that's a word that when you see it, you recognize it is a sight of greatness, one of significance. It's not just a light, insignificant thing. You don't just walk up to the Grand Canyon and say, "Me, I've seen better canyons before." No, 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 no. You go, and and it's like life-changing. You're like, "Whoa, this is heavy, weighty. It's grand. It's awestruck. It's amazing. It's glorious." So, yes, the word kavod means heavy, weighty, significant, but it has a figurative meaning of important, noteworthy, impressive. And when the Bible speaks of the glory of God, it means to tell us of his infinite significance, the totality of all his perfections, the fullness of his deity compressed into a single concept When the Bible says that God is glorious, it means to tell us that He is infinitely great and perfect. And when God shows up on the scene and manifests Himself in some way, whether that be the burning bush, Sinai, and the Holy of Holies, and the temple, throughout the Scriptures, when God shows up on the scene, it is always a sight to behold. It can be described in one single word, kavod, glorious. So when it says in the story of Jesus' transfiguration that they saw His glory, it means that in this moment where Jesus' was, form was changed, it was like a veil was taken away, and for a short moment, in that moment, the disciples could see Jesus for who He was. They could see His glory. And that's why they use words like radiant, shining, glistening, bright, brilliant, Because if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you're going to try to use words to describe what you saw. But you're also going to say, it's a little bit indescribable. And that's what the gospel writers are doing. They're just trying to take words from our language to describe this amazing and significant sight. But when it says they saw Jesus' glory, the story of the transfiguration is telling us it's a story, another story in the line of stories that's telling us that Jesus is God. Because when they saw his glory, they saw the glory of God telling us that Jesus is is God. Matter of fact, another question we need to look at makes this same point, but it also is important for us to wrap our minds around to, in order to understand the story, and that's this question. Why was Moses and Elijah on the mountain of transfiguration? Why were they up there? Now, I said already Moses was the great lawgiver of the Old Testament. Elijah came to represent all the prophets of the Old Testament. And these two are associated and often uh, recognized that they would be there at the arrival of the Messianic age. But but what's going on here? Why are they there? Well, I want you to notice a few things. First, Luke says that when Moses and Elijah appeared, they appeared in glorious splendor. So there's some sense in which they were glorious too, but their glory is contrasted with Jesus. Because Jesus, it seems like the text is telling us the glory comes out of him. But for Moses and Elijah, it's more like a reflection. You can kind of compare it to the sun and the moon, right? The sun, it's the light source. It's brilliant. And any kind of light that the moon provides, it's merely just a reflection. So, Moses and Elijah have some kind of glory radiating from them in some sense, probably because they've been in the presence of God. But that is contrasted with Jesus' glory, which is coming out of him. Theirs is reflection. His is the source. Furthermore, after the voice of God speaks, it's, and it says, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Do you remember what happens to Moses and Elijah then? What does it say there in verse 36? What happens to Moses and Elijah? They disappear. They're not there anymore. The three disciples look up, and Jesus is standing alone. What does this mean? I think this story is trying to tell us Jesus is not just another prophet or teacher trying to get near to God. He is the God that all the prophets and teachers are trying to get near to. Let me say that again. The fact that Moses and Elijah only reflect the glory of God in Jesus, the glory shines out of him, and also because they disappear from the scene after God says, this is my son, listen to him, is because Jesus is not another teacher. He's not another prophet in a line. He is the God that all the prophets, all the teachers are trying to get near to. He's not just another sage, a wise man, religious leader. No, 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 no. He's the God. All the prophets, all the teachers, all the sages, all the wise men, all the religious leaders have been trying to get to. And I don't want you to miss this point because it is key. When this whole thing happens on the mountain, it means that Jesus is the one that the entire Old Testament has been pointing us to. He is surpassingly greater than any teacher or teaching, any prophet or prophecy or revelation that has ever come before. He is the God that everything revealed up to this point has been pointing to. It's why the book of Hebrews starts this way. It says this, Hebrews 1.1, "'In the past God spoke to our ancestors "'through the prophets in many times and in various ways, "'but in these last days,' He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. God reveals His glory when He sends His one and only Son. He is the exact representation of God. He radiates the glory of God. If you want to see God's glory, You have to seek out Jesus first. You have to know him. He's not just another religious leader trying to get near to God. He is the God all the religious leaders have been trying to get to. But there's one last question we need to answer in order to wrap our minds around this story. And that is, what is that thick cloud that surrounds Jesus? And what's its significance? You remember that? Look back with me. Uh, Luke 9, verse 34, it says, While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came from the cloud, saying, This my son, whom I have chosen, listen to him. What is this cloud thing? And what's so terrifying about it? I I don't know about you, but clouds, they don't really terrify me. Like, I I always, like, want to touch the clouds, right? They're, like, nice and fluffy, all this great thing, right? What is so terrifying about this cloud? Well, the disciples and the early readers of the Gospel of Luke would have immediately known. And so a little bit of a history lesson for you, or or test, I should say. This is not rhetorical. I'm looking for somebody to shout out an answer. Can anybody think of a story in the Old Testament where a cloud comes down on a mountain and the voice of God begins to speak? Anybody? Anybody? Old Testament, it's in the Old Testament, a story cloud comes down on a mountain, the voice begins to speak. Ten commandments. There it is. Okay, good, 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 good. I was waiting for you, Doug. I was waiting to hear it from you. Okay, Ten Commandments. Moses, Mount Sinai. That's exactly right. Exodus chapter 19, verse 9. I want you to listen. It says, the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the story goes on to say this in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like the smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. We have here a theophany of God. God's presence has come down on Mount Sinai, and as a result, this thick cloud with lightning and thunder surrounds the mountain. And this cloud is lethal, by the way. The people are told to stay away. If they were to come near, they would perish. They would die. There's a reason why when this cloud shows up, it terrifies the people who see it. And no wonder, right? Because God's own glory has been manifested for people to see. It is a terrifying and fearful sight to behold. And the reason why is because God is so glorious. Nobody takes a spaceship to the sun like it's too bright, it's too brilliant, it's too magnificent. And so it is with God. Too significant, great, majestic. It should bring in us a sense of reverence, respect, a humbled disposition. And that cloud, Mount Sinai, is the same kind of cloud that appears around Jesus and the three disciples at the mountain of transfiguration. It terrified them as they entered it. But I want you to notice something in our story. It's a subtle detail, but it's profound. Check it out, Luke 9, 34. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I've chosen to listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples entered the glory cloud, the one that was forbidden to even be touched in the Old Testament, and they live. So for some reason, when God's glory comes down on Mount Sinai, it means sudden and sure death. But when the glory cloud comes in and out of Jesus, the disciples can approach it, even though it's terrifying, and still live. What does this mean? What's this telling us? Jesus is not only the God on the other side of the gap. He is the God in in the gap. And don't miss this. Because God is so glorious, significant, great, wonderful in every way, to enter into His presence is a fearful and terrifying thing. And because we are so far from glorious, when we enter into His presence, it means sudden and sure death. But Jesus, who is God? also allows us to come into the presence of God and still live. Jesus is not only the God on the other side of the gap, he is the God in the gap. And perhaps you've heard this a thousand times, but I want you to hear this truth as if you've never heard it before. I've already read this verse, but I didn't read the whole thing. Hebrews 1, 3. The son of radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. He sustains everything by the mighty power of his command, and then it's going to tell us how he's the God in the gap. It says, when he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Because Jesus is the God on the other side of the canyon, and also the God in the canyon, the reason he's able to be the God in the canyon is because he willingly sacrificed himself on the cross on our behalf. Then he victoriously rose from the dead three days later. And when he ascended to heaven, the scripture says he sat down. Why does he sit down? Think about this. After a long day of work, you come home and what do you do? Sit down. Why? Work's done. It's the end of the day. That's what Jesus has done. His death on the cross and his resurrection tells us the work is done. He is the God on the other side of the gap, but He's also the God in the gap. What a profound truth. And the glory of God, friends, I believe, is the entire message of the Bible. President Roosevelt said this about the Grand Canyon keep it for your children your children's children, and for all who come after you as the one great sight which every American should see. And this may be true at the Grand Canyon. It is America's glory. Everybody should go and see it. But what's even more profound, and I believe a message that the Bible teaches us, is that the glory of God is the one great sight that every human Kevin Fedarko, he's the writer in that Disney Plus documentary that I mentioned, he said this at the end of the documentary. He said, the canyon is a ruthless cathedral, and like all holy places, invites people to think, reflect, and I think above all, to move toward and embrace an element of humility. It invites us to reframe our perspective of where we stand and forces us to conclude that in the end, we are not large. We are not important. We do not matter, and we so need that. Kess and I listened to this. She said, you've got to work that into your sermon because as I look at that and apply that truth to God, that is so true, isn't it? That when we see his glory, we recognize we are so small. He is so great. I don't know if Kevin is a Christ follower, not, not for sure, but John Piper, he's a preacher, and he said something very, very similar to this. He said this, we are all starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. And that, my friends, is the story. Is what the story of the transfiguration teaches us. When we behold the glory of God, a transformation happens in our life. When we turn from self, and turn to the glory of God, and begin to pursue His weight and His significance, that is when we find not just healing for our souls, but the meaning and purpose of all of life itself. And I think all of us in here would love to have a Mount Transfiguration experience, wouldn't we? We would all love to see face-to-face the glory of God. And I hear things like, If I could just see you, God, then I would believe. Or or Jesus, if I could just sense your presence, then I could overcome this sin. It reminds me of Thomas right after the resurrection. He said, if I could just put my finger in the holes where the nail holes were, then I would know that he's risen from the dead. And I'm not saying that God has never done these things. Obviously, he has. The scripture tells us. Or I'm not saying that he can never do those things What I believe our story is teaching us today is if you want to see the glory of God, it means that what he says needs to become weightier than any other voice in your life. It's why the voice from within the cloud says, listen to him. And that means not just hearing his words, it means putting them into practice. Church, we know so many things intellectually, don't we? We know we should be a good neighbor. We know we should be a kind person. We know that we should give of our time and resources and talents. But we don't always know things existentially. And what I mean is there's things that we know in our head and our mind, but they don't always come into existence. They don't always make that, that that root down to the heart and then out of the overflow of the heart into our actions and our words. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he talks about this similar concept. He says this in verse 12, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech, and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away, but their minds were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over the heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. For some of you in here today you need to hear this message it is only through christ that you can see the glory of god he is the god on the other side of the gap but he is also the god in the gap and if you want to seek and behold the glory of god you need to have a relationship with him it's why paul writes but whenever a person turns from the lord the veil is lifted for the lord is the spirit where the spirit of the lord is there is liberty there's freedom The veil of sin was covering us from seeing the glory of God, and it is taken away in Christ because of his substitutionary death of atonement on the cross on our behalf, and also because when he rose from the grave, he rose victoriously, and then he sits down at the right hand of God the Father, interceding on our behalf. It is only through him that you can see the glory of God. But once we begin that relationship with him, a transformation takes place. Paul describes it by saying, we go from glory to glory. That means that as we surrender more of our life to God, as we pursue Him in an ever-growing, deeper relationship, He becomes more significant and weightier in our life than any other thing. So let me put some flesh on what I'm talking about here. Perhaps you're someone who has initiated that relationship with Christ. You're a Christ follower. But let's be honest. All of us who are Christ followers, we still got a mess that needs to be cleaned up in our lives, don't we? Perhaps for you, it's an addiction. An addiction to something like pornography. And you're thinking to yourself, yes, I'm forgiven, God. Your word says it, but this thing in my life is just tearing my life apart. It's shattered. It's broken. God, how do I move from glory to glory in this area of my life? His word says, listen to him. And when you learn and hear of who he is and what he says, and you realize his word says, find pleasure in living for me and not in objectifying women, and when that truth becomes not just TED knowledge, existential knowledge, you live it out, and you find indeed there is more pleasure in living for God than in what happens on this screen, you move from glory to glory. But then that addiction Although it's changing in your life, it's done some damage in your relationship, specifically your marriage. And it's torn that relationship apart, and it's broken, it's in pieces. And you cry out to God again, God, how do I move from glory to glory in my marriage? Listen to Him. And you hear that who He is and what His Word says, that if you want to have a successful marriage... You, as a husband, should love your wife the way that Christ loved the church. And this is how he loved her. He gave himself for her. And when that truth of who he is becomes more weightier to you than any other book on marriage, than any other video series you could watch, any kind of message, when his truth becomes more weightier than your life, than anything else, you move from glory to glory. But then, as your relationship with your wife begins to improve, and you all begin to take on challenges together, You realize one of those challenges is your finances. You're drowning in debt and you just cannot find financial peace and you're crying out to God, God, how do I move from glory to glory in my finances? Listen to Him. Who He is and His Word tells us that everything we have belongs to Him. That we should give sacrificially and that we should just find contentment. And when that truth about who he is and what he says becomes more weightier to us than keeping up with the Joneses and having the biggest house and having the nicest car on the block and going on six vacations every summer and fall break and spring break, when his truth of who he is becomes more weightier and significant in our life than anything else, we move from glory to glory. You see what's happening here. Every area of my life, Every aspect of my life is being brought under the glory of God, who He is, what He says is more significant than any person, any voice, any sin, any worldview, anything, even self. And that's moving from glory to glory, but I want you to know something. That's not something you and I do on our own. The Word says it's the Spirit who transforms us. And so today, I want to call the church to pursue the glory of God. Take a step. Maybe that step is your initial pursuit in accepting Christ and finding freedom in Him. But each of us need to be committed to a life of pursuing the glory of God, allowing the Spirit to do a work of transformation in our life, moving us from glory to glory. So I ask you this question. What area in your life have you allowed another voice to be louder than God's. What in your life is more significant, heavier than God himself? And Whatever that is, take that step to move from glory to glory. I'm going to invite the band to come back out and join me on stage because we're going to close and sing this song. And the song that we're going to sing to close our service is called Glory to Glory. I know it's a song we've never sang here at Plum Creek, but I've come to love this song because it's just scripture. It's singing God's words back to him. The chorus goes, we go from glory to glory to glory. Exactly what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. And then it goes on to say, we'll never be the same. We're forever changed. You take us higher and higher and higher. First, it puts the work on what God is doing in us, not what we can do on our own. We're relying on his power. But in taking us higher and saying we'll, forever change will never be the same. It means that what used to be significant to us is insignificant in comparison to who God is. And so today, I'm going to invite you to sing this song as an anthem and a declaration to God, saying, we hear your words, God, and we are declaring them back to you that we are going to be people who are transformed for your glory. Let us pursue the glory of Let's stand and sing.